Hi, this is Adrian Cowan from Seven Spires, and you are listening to Sonic Perspectives. music lovers. My name is Samantha Buckman, and I am here to bring you another interview from Sonic Perspectives. Today I am joined with Adrian Cohen and Jack Costo of the upcoming shining star of the symphonic metal scene, Seven Spires. It's an absolute pleasure to have you two here today. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, the big thing that's coming up is your sophomore album, Emerald Seas, which is coming out on February 14th. And I just have to say that I am absolutely overflowing with questions. There's just so much material to work with here. But I figure that I'll start by letting you talk a little bit more about your style, and a bit more broadly. Now, the label that I've seen used most often for Seven Spires, and how I introduced you, is Symphonic Metal. But I've also seen the labels Power, Melodic Death, and even Black Metal applied to your sound. It seems like there are some songs where all of the above would apply. How would you describe your style? Uh, I I would personally say that symphonic metal is probably the most accurate, if only because the symphonic part is what ties the rest of it all together. Um, we have some songs that are heavily black metal influenced and melodic death metal influenced and power metal influenced and um, even by jazz or classical music. But uh, the consistent things are obviously that we're all the same musicians, uh, Adrian's vocals and the orchestrations. So I, I would say that symphonic metal is, for lack of a better term, more accurate. Yeah, symphonic metal or theatrical metal, perhaps. So you, what do you find in those symphonic elements really ties all of your songs together? What's the common thread here? Um, late motifs. <laughs> um you look like you're not pleased with that answer no no oh, okay <laughs> um so i guess also uh, to expand on that um we write concept albums so we are obsessed with storytelling and um taking maybe melodies that you've heard in a previous song earlier in the album and recoloring them with a different harmony or putting them on a different instrument to give them a different feeling that applies uh, within the the new scene. As, as you just mentioned, this is very much a project driven by storytelling and a theatrical cinematic atmosphere. So what really drives this project? Is it that cinematic storytelling concept or is it musicianship or some combination of both? I would say it's just a love for making the art that we wanted to hear. Uh, that's kind of a really arty answer, but I think... I think that's the best. Maybe Jack can say something better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on that note, I think it's mostly about the storytelling, but it's also that we're all very passionate about our crafts as musicians, and we like pushing ourselves to our limits. And then it makes sense to, of course, use those skills that we have to further the end product, which is the story, which is the art. So... I, I think it's a little of both, and I would say that the storytelling comes first, but the musicianship is uh, why we enjoy doing what we do, to some degree, at least. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, I could nerd out for hours about that, but 
Let's go with that. I love that you guys keep mentioning that you're artists, and this is a work of art. And as someone that fell in love with this album at first listen, it truly is a work of art that pulls you in. As I understand, the band met in Berklee College of Music. So how has this education translated into a songwriting experience since you identify so strongly with being artists? I went to many years of music school, and um, I studied songwriting techniques, vocal techniques. But when I went to Berkeley, I really um, studied mostly um, writing for an orchestra and for symphonies and that sort of thing. I guess the education really helped us best express what we wanted to say musically that maybe we wouldn't have known how to say before. You look like you want to say something. I, I was listening to you. But oh. uh, so I think that exactly as Adrian said, it having that kind of formal education not only helps us um, know the terms and know more colors to draw from when we feel like we need them. Like, uh, it, oh, I need a chord that sounds um, like I am homesick. Then maybe we'll grab a four minor seven or minor six or that's something exactly like that. And that's say, exactly yeah. what it would work for. Yeah. Um, and also it helps us communicate with each other well enough to have just a, a formal set of terms to use so that we all know what each other are talking about. Um, and it's the kind of thing I don't think is necessary to be a good artist or a good musician, but I think it helps us in what we do um, to be efficient and to, uh, I guess, have a wider palette of colors readily available to draw from. It's incredible that you seem so in sync with one another, even just talking about the album now. So how did you as a band sit down? At one point, Emerald Seas was a blank page. How did you go from that to a 14-song epic? That blank page to the end result. Can you walk me through what happened in between? Oh my gosh, I forgot there are 14 songs. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> well, for us, every song starts with feelings. Um, I am the lyricist and the, the story writer, word, world builder of the band. I'm probably actually the biggest nerd when it comes to stuff like that. Um, but every song starts with feelings, which then gets written down either in some form of lyrics or I would sit down at a piano by myself, turn my phone off um, or turn the data services off and just try to find the right chords to express how I'm feeling. And if I can find something good, then I'll take a little video. So I remember for later. Um, then I go back to my home studio and um, I try to get as much of it close to being complete as I can in terms of vocals and piano. Um, and then Jack will join me and we tell the rest of the arrangement. Um, sometimes it's harder to make a complete song without him because some of the songs are very like riff centric um, or you just really need something like in Drowner of Worlds, for example, you really need this like driving like this type of thing. And um, the rest of the song kind of will grow from that. So once we have once we have a finished arrangement, um, at least the first draft of it, then we send it to Pete and Chris, and they will draft their parts. And then at some point, we get together for a few days, and we just lock ourselves in a practice room, and we um, fine-tune parts, and then we record whenever everyone is free. <laughs> <laughs> 
from what I can hear, there's a very precise methodology which you approach this. Did you have that same kind of methodology for the first album, or did you learn from that? Sort of, we had a less refined version of it, perhaps. Um, the first album was done, basically was finished writing before Pete came into the fold, and then also was finished recording before Chris came into the fold. So uh, Emerald Seas is the first album with Chris playing drums on it. Um, and Pete wasn't around for much of the writing process of uh, Solvay. So I feel like it was a similar process in the way that Adrian and I write, but this time around, uh, there's a lot more Pete and Chris influence on the grooves and uh, on the, the sound as a whole. Mm-hmm. Is it difficult to balance this methodology with passion, or do you find that your passion is part of the methodology? I think we're wildly passionate about every every step in the method. Jack nods in agreement and is smiling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot you can't do this. <laughs> I feel that I could spend literally hours talking about each little detail of this album. I really do want to just pick your brain on some of these very driven riffs and some of the very emotional choruses that I hear. But first, I want to look at the actual concept of this album as a whole. As you said, you're storytellers. This is your story. For our audience, could you just go over the concept of this album kind of broadly? Sure. Um, So the opening track kind of is the best way... Best place to begin. Um, the rough translation of the Latin is um, protects the fire within, beware the beast below, um, immortality lies in the east. And so what this means is basically this main character, who, who I guess you see on the front cover, um, is the captain of a ship called the Great Divide. And on their ship, they find out that they are searching for this um, island far in the east where you could say the fountain of youth flows, I guess. And this island is guarded by an ancient and terrible beast that lives in the depths of the ocean and hunts sailors who have lost all hope. And yeah, that's kind of the premise of the album, I guess. Does it tie into the concept of your first album? Yes, it does. It's the prequel um, to Solvay, and it's essentially the backstory of the demon character. So before the demon was immortal and terrible and built this new Victorian underworld, the demon was a mortal searching for eternal life. How much do you feel an emotional connection from this story? Is this, does this come from a personal emotional experience or is it a fantasy creation or some combination of both? It's kind of a combination of both. Um, As I said earlier, I'm an extremely emotional person and all the songs come from feelings that I've had, um, which I guess come from my experiences in my life. But I would not say that, um, you know, all the experiences I had are in the same order as what happened in the story, for example. And obviously, there is no fountain of youth for me to <laughs> try to find. So it's not really exactly like this. But um, in every songwriting uh, class or every, you know, kind of really proficient songwriter that I've spoken with, they, the main thing that they tell you is write what you know. Um, so that's what I do. And then we build stories around it. And sometimes in the middle of the process, it, things don't seem like they'll fit or there will be holes in the story because I wrote the last song today. And then like, you know, maybe a week from now I'll have written the first song. So sometimes it just comes out completely out of order, but, um, somehow everything ends up working fine. <laughs> magically. 
to say that this album works fine is an understatement. <laughs> Going back to, you said you'll write some songs one day and some another day. The emotions within a track can vary wildly, but so can the intensity and emotion between tracks, even ones that are next to each other. So what emotional theme do you feel ties this album together? And which song seems to be most representative of the concept and the emotions that you want to get across? I would say the bit, I'm going to be so mad at myself if I get this wrong. Um, but as I'm thinking about the album as a whole right now, I would say one of the biggest emotions is like fighting burnout and fighting so hard. And some days you you win and some days you get eaten by the Kraken. <laughs> did, did, I, did I answer your question? I'm sorry. Yes, yes, you did. Um, okay. Huh? Which song do you most see yourself in that you connect most deeply with? Oh, um... And that goes to both of you. Okay, you go first, Jack. Oh, that's really tough. I wish you didn't say I should go first. Um, <laughs> maybe... Uh, oh, man. It would be different depending on the day, but I would say probably Succumb feels the most like me today. Um, and I, I guess that would be just from a lyrical standpoint and also a musical standpoint, but I, I'm also really fond of Silvery Moon. I think for me, um, the obvious choice is Fearless, um, but I wanted to pick something that wasn't obvious. <laughs> um, perhaps Unmapped Darkness also. Um, both both kind of tie into this uh, um, like feeling of, like, oh, I just can't go on and I want to give up. But one is, I'm just going to keep pushing... Um, I'll go out into unmapped darkness, stand guard on the glass on a dreary, or wait, what is the line? Stand guard on the glass of a dreary sea. And, uh, fearless, of course, is I just can't do it anymore. And I'm not afraid of dying, not afraid of failing. I just, just, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. So some days it's one and some days it's the other. <laughs> so what would you say, as you mentioned earlier, this album encompasses so many different styles which artists and bands have been the most inspiration to you for this album in metal and rock or even beyond? Oh, Lord. Um, in metal, I think we the standard response we kind of give, like our, our main influences are probably Camelot, Nightwish, Diva Borgir, and Flesh God Apocalypse, not necessarily in that order. And uh, But outside of that, there are just so many from pop to jazz to electronic music to classical music to death metal to film scores um especially in adrian's case she is all over a big nerd yeah a big nerd um and peter our bass player is also a fantastic gypsy uh, gypsy jazz bass player um and there's some acoustic bass stuff on the album our drummer chris is all over the place with Prague and, uh, you know, different styles of jazz and everything. He can basically play everything. So it's really hard to narrow down a list because we all like so much and our tastes are all very eclectic. All right. That definitely explains just the massive range of sound that you guys have in this album. Huh? But speaking of just other artists in general, that brings us to the topic of another few big events in your future that isn't just the release of Emerald Seas. You have two huge tours coming up. You'll be supporting Insomnium and Omnium Gatherum first, and later Battle Beast and Amaranth. These are two very different artists, 
but I can see your music working beautifully as supporting for both. What do these two tours mean for Seven Spires? Well, this is something that's kind of crazy about these two tours. Um, when we were writing Emerald Seas a few years ago, um, I'm a big lists and goals person. I love to write lists of things that I need to do or things that I want to achieve um, because I really think that the more you talk about things and put them out into the universe is kind of like a woo-woo thing to say, but um, this is what my mom calls it, woo-woo stuff. But um, the more you talk about it and write things down, the more likely it will manifest, but you have to be very careful about the way you say it. And so we had this list of like ideal bands to tour with with for, Emer for Emerald Seas. I've been talking all day and my mouth doesn't work anymore, sorry. Um, but Amaranth, Insomnium, and Omnium Gatherum were all on that list. And um, it's just kind of wild that it actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, you want to talk a little bit? Yeah, I, I think part of the cool part, um, I'm glad that you've said so much about diversity in the music, because I, I feel like now that we have these two albums out, um, we can actually tailor the songs that we play live to who we're touring with. And so perhaps a heavier set, with Insomnium and Omnium Gatherum and more extreme vocals. And then when we go out with Amaranth and Battle Beast, a more melodic approach to uh, the live show. But I think that the nice part about doing what we do is that I, at least personally, I also feel like we can fit in with both crowds and hopefully uh, draw some attention from people who wouldn't necessarily have discovered us from spotify or whatever and thought wow this is really cool but perhaps seeing us with insomnium will be a different experience you took the question right out of my mouth i was going to ask how you're planning on building these set lists because you do have options if nothing else so would you say that you're going to look to wow a crowd that might not have listened to you originally or are you tr going to try to more tailor it to the headlining bands probably a mix of both um we try our best to wow new fans with everything that we do. <laughs> We're, we, uh, we just, we love our jobs so much. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Like it, I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter, but no matter what we play, we are going to give it our all. So if that means tailoring it to the tailoring it to the headliners or just trying to, I mean, how, what am I trying to say? You you probably know what I'm trying to say, and I'm just doing a bad job explaining it. <laughs> um, I I think the trick for us is that we we try not to write anything that's like filler. So we we have like we get joy from playing everything, and we wish we could play everything every night. Um, but it's a nice opportunity to tailor our set lists to whoever we're touring with. And I think uh, there are also some songs that it would just be weird if we didn't play. And maybe those are some of the ones that draw people more towards the middle of our sound than the extreme ends. I like to think that the wow factor will be like, I've seen this happen, so I'm going to say it, but like um, the just sheer passion that we have for our art, I would hope that, um, it would be infectious for for new listeners and viewers, no matter what we play. Which new song are you most looking forward to performing? Oh, Fearless for me. <laughs> um, I'm. We've been opening our shows with the 
Siren and Encounter from Solvay, uh, the first two tracks, for probably five years now. Um, and so I'm looking forward to starting the show differently than we have been. Um, I think it's just going to be new and exciting and a different experience for us on stage. You mentioned that all of these bands that you're going to be touring with have been on that list of yours, that wish list. But if you could open for any band, pick any band, who would you want to open for? I would say Demo Borgir, but I'm predictable. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, so on the other hand, I would say Nightwish, just because I'm also predictable. And because I said Demo Borgir, so like to balance out. So I'll go for the black metal and you'll go for like the pretty, the pretty metal. <laughs> yeah. And they, they've just been a favorite band of mine since I was like 11. So that would be like a little bit of a, a moment for me, if nothing else. Speaking of performances in general, the two singles that you've released so far, Succumb and Drowner of Worlds, both have music videos accompanying them. And my goodness, if those are not some stunning performances on your part, could you talk about the filming process for those? How did you get to that? Those absolutely incredible final results. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> this is a story and a half. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I have to be nice here, but... Uh, so initially, um, the the videographer who did the final products for those two music videos also did the videos for the Cabaret of Dreams and the Paradox from Solvay. And we love his work and we love his attention to detail in conveying our vision onto film or digitally or what I guess it's not really film these days, but onto video. Um, and so we wanted to work with him again, but he's very busy and... Uh, expensive so we ended up going with another videographer in the area and the end product did not come out uh our label said it was unacceptable yeah so we basically had to throw those videos out almost entirely and start from scratch and refilm these videos um and just suck it up and pay the guy's fee and we've learned our lesson and we'll just do that again <laughs> it was it was actually okay because we ended up getting to work with like the guy that we love anyway um and also um i will also tell you that there's one more video coming and basically for every all three of the videos it was cold and in two of them i was soaking wet <laughs> <laughs> like in the Drowner of Worlds video, um, it was raining during the outdoor scenes. And as the video goes on, you can see my hair is just getting more and more plastered to my face and like my makeup's running and I look like a drowned rat. Um, but it's actually kind of OK for me. I It's weird to say, but I just really don't mind it all to suffer for my art. I kind of like it in a messed up way. <laughs> I, I think it makes it a little more real somehow. A suffering aside, you definitely matched the anger and the grace in both of those respective songs. But I do have to ask about the outfits. Do you just have those outfits on hand or were those picked just for the videos? I love, okay. I I'm obsessed with this certain type of aesthetic. My, if you could see my entire room is decked out with like, I have a uh, black a gold on black brocade wallpaper and like a pentagram mirror with like blood red candles next to it. I have like a, a red velvet couch. Like, so this, this, um, I guess it's part of world building. So in a way it's kind of like we picked them out, but at the same time, 
I also just like to have these clothes in case I find an excuse to wear them. For example, a photo shoot or uh, a music video. And I think Jack's kind of the same. And Pete to some degree, but um, I think Chris not as much. Yeah, I so it is it is kind of both. We we pick them intentionally, but we also just have the stuff laying around for when we get to wear them. <laughs> we we have it laying around so that we can then pick them intentionally. <laughs> also, sometimes uh, when Jack so Jack lives Jack lives in South Carolina, and I live in Texas. So sometimes he comes here uh, to write with me, and if we're having like really bad writer's block, sometimes we just put on outfits like this. Um, to get in basically into character and get inspired. And that probably sounds really stupid, but um, it helps. So, yeah. I have the utmost respect for your creative process. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> and how did you get into character for those videos? Does it come naturally? And I do have to ask, where were they shot? Because there are some beautiful shots on the beach and with the landscape. So where where'd you end up for those? Do you remember where we shot? Uh, I don't remember the exact names, but they're all in New England, um, sort of in the Boston metro area-ish. Um, just different public parks and beaches that we could kind of go a little bit off the beaten path and get some nice shots. Uh, our videographer would know more about that, and he's also a big part of uh, helping us get into character because he knows what looks good and what looks exciting and realistic, and he can direct us. Um, in a way that he feels gets our message across. Um, and so I, I feel like that's a very valuable thing for us because we, we aren't necessarily all actors. We're just musicians. So having some direction from the outside of someone who understands the, the vision as well is really important. I did a ton of musical theater when I was in school. Um, and I wanted to be actually an actor in musicals. And then I realized I did not like dancing. And I wasn't very good at acting beyond a certain type of character. And I got typecast a lot. So I do draw a little bit on what I learned from those experiences um, in terms of what I know will like look good for body language and facial expressions. But most of the time, this character comes out based on how I remember feeling when I wrote the songs. So I just try to channel that as much as I can. And then um, the outfit just kind of does the rest. Both of these songs, no matter how different they are, the absolute power and grace that everyone has and that composure throughout the videos ties them together so well. Now, that is a unifying factor, but these two songs, as I'm sure you've been told, couldn't be further apart. How were these two <laughs> songs the natural choice for singles, or were they the natural choice? There was a little bit of uh, debate between a couple of the different ones, which would be the singles. But I think um, part of like the order that we released them in and the songs that we chose are kind of something we like to do and release a more accessible melodic one, perhaps first, and then a pummeling heavily, heavier one second. And... Uh, the third one is also very different that is going to be coming out. So uh, it's I don't know if it's really something that was obvious because we debated a little bit, but it, it seems like the natural thing for us, at least. We also asked somebody on our team who is not um, part of the band, but helps with, um, you know, like writing some 
PR stuff, um, what he thought as far as what songs would be good. And um, Succumb was one that he said, you absolutely just have to have to make this a single. Um, and I think this is due to just his, how he could relate emotionally and how touched he was by it. Jack is nodding, but yeah. <laughs> so we, I mean, sometimes you just have to pick based on like, I think this will touch people and I think people will relate to it and maybe it will help them somehow. And yeah. And hopefully, uh, it it makes sense to pick some that are a, a good representation of the overall feel of the album as well, so that uh, the single is not out in left field, and then people are wondering why the rest of the album doesn't sound like that, as much as is possible with our music anyway. <laughs> Given that you did cover so much ground between the very highly symphonic and cinematic succumb and that much that blackened, much heavier drowner of worlds. You did cover a lot of ground, but which track would you say still has the most surprise for um, listeners? What's that? Maybe, maybe No Words Exchanged. Oh, oh, No Words Exchanged for sure. Either that one or um, With Love from the Other Side. Yeah. yeah. You want to talk about No Words, though? Uh, yeah, I can. So um, there's there's a track called... Oh, yeah. There's a, a song called No Words Exchanged toward the beginning of the album um, that's very different from anything else that we've ever done in that it's very influenced by electronic dance music, um, but arranged for orchestra and metal bands. So you don't hear necessarily a lot of synthesizers and stuff. Yeah. It's not like kind of electronic dance music. It's like soft and like sensual kind of. And then uh, we arranged that for, more traditional symphonic metal instruments and uh it's kind of an interesting arty off the wall song but one that we're really actually kind of proud of and i'm excited to see how people feel about it so that's probably the biggest surprise i would say yeah and uh with love from the other side it's just vocals and piano and orchestra which i don't think is something that we've really done as its own track the closest that we got to that was the middle section of burn where it's like all I have to offer is a memory. But With Love from the Other Side was inspired by um, the composer Edward Elgar has this piece um, called Sosbury Opus 70. And um, yeah, just this kind of this feeling of like your heart sighing. Um, yeah, that's what that's 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 where that came from. All right. I have loved hearing just how much thought you've put into the songwriting process. I can see all of the love that you have for the art, but also this methodology that I really could listen to you talk about all day. But I know that this definitely isn't the end for Seven Spires because you've got these two tours coming up and I can just feel the creative energy between you two right now. So what is the future for Seven Spires? Where do you see yourself going after you exhaust yourself on four, five months of touring? Uh, well, to be honest with you, we already have like 15, 16 songs written for the next album. So uh, we're just going to keep working on that and probably start recording pretty soon. Uh, we we don't like to stop. Yeah, we're we're basically always writing and we're always practicing and pushing ourselves as musicians and uh, always trying to come up with new and interesting ways to push the envelope for us and find the next new cool thing that is going to become a part of what we do. So 
it's even though uh there's time between album cycles and releases and stuff we never really stop and what would you say that you're most excited about in the near future i can't wait to get on tour again i spent like over half of last year on the road and now i've been home since mid-december and it's it's been so weird haven't done anything but sit at home and write which is fantastic and i'm very grateful to have the time off but it's been weird so i am extremely excited to go out with three of my favorite bands this year um with the band that we grew from the ground up that really like means a lot emotionally yeah basically the same answer for me i'm i'm always looking forward to recording the next and the next and the next album um but touring with these guys is also so fun and it's going to be great to just all be in the same vehicle hanging out 24 7 again as well yeah we're we're all each other's best friends i think so it's it's really like a positive experience we we don't like hate each other on tour somebody asked us like do you guys like fight on tour or something (laughs) and we we just yeah we all love each other so yeah it's going to be really great. All right. That's fantastic, you guys. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me about the album. Thank you for asking awesome questions. We thank you for listening to us uh, nerd out. <laughs> so we'll either play Succumb or Drowner of Worlds as the closing track to the um, to the interview. Which one would you prefer? I suppose Drowner of Worlds as it's the most recently released. All right. Thank you guys so much for your time. It was an absolute pleasure. And I really hope that I get a chance to see you guys on tour. I hope so, too. If we're in town and you're in town, let us know, and we'll Definitely. see Definitely. <laughs> All right. Have a good one, you guys. Thank you. You, too. Thank Thanks you. for everything. Bye-bye. All right, folks. You just heard from Adrian Cohen and Jack Costo of Seven Spires. Their second album, Emerald Seas, will be released on February 14th in all of its brilliant glory. If you want to hear more interviews like this one and get daily music news and reviews, follow Sonic Perspectives on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to our YouTube channel. To close out the interview, enjoy the electrifying new single from Seven Spires, Drowner of Worlds. (laughs) 